Hi, my name is Michelle Fiordaliso. And I'm Zora Linger-Reed. Manaz Mahmood is an early childhood innovator and educator. When her daughter Sabine Mahmood, activist and founder of the cafe and performance space T2F in Karachi, Pakistan, was murdered in 2015, Manaz's life changed in obvious and also unexpected ways, giving her greater clarity and purpose about justice and living fully. As a way to process her grief and continue dialoguing with her daughter, she kept extensive journal entries, which she decided to put forth this year for the five-year anniversary of Sabine's death. The collection, called Conversations Interrupted, can be found online. So we have Manaz Mahmood with us today. She's live from uh, Karachi, Pakistan. And, well, I guess she won't be live when this airs, but uh, <laughs> she's talking, speaking to us from Karachi, Pakistan. And I, I have been so fascinated in, and engaged by you as a person, uh, and yet I know that the world often pairs you with your daughter, Sabine. And so I think it's impossible to have a conversation without letting listeners know about you and your daughter and, and your relationship a little bit. So maybe you can share some of that with us. So you, you want to know about my relationship with Sabine, right? That's where well, first tell us, going. well, first tell us about her for people that don't know. I mean, Many people will know that Sabine Mahmood was a world-renowned activist and many other things. But so tell us a little bit about her and what happened. And then, you know, I'd also love to hear about your relationship, too. So, you know, maybe the world looks at her as this world-renowned activist. But to me, that just sounds really strange because I, I know her as my daughter and as my friend and as this person, you know, lived in the same home as me. And I have to say that I was really in awe of, of her after her passing, looking at all the reactions from all around the world and the number of people who were heartbroken and who were inspired and continue to be. So I never quite saw her as that activist person. To me, her brand of activism and mine as well is kind of living life on one's own terms and standing up for what one believes is right and for one's values and um, not being afraid of putting oneself out. To me, that daily kind of activism is what is important. Now, I'd, I'd like to just differentiate this from the activism why, I mean, I think about it so differently. And that is when we talk about activism, generally, you know, you get this vision of this person who's really serious about life and about issues and about stuff and they don't really and, and sometimes activism is also like a profession and people become activists which is fine I'm not judging anyone I just want to say Sabine was not that kind of person not in my perception at least whatever she did she enjoyed doing it she was kind of a really fun person she was so many different things. So to me, it was very strange to keep on hearing this hero, this activist, this person who, who gave her life for this, that, and the other. Yes, I think she gave her life for what she believed in. And uh, she that she did. And I of that, I, I take great pride in that, that, you know, she lived in the moment and that she, whatever she did, she believed in. And, and that's true for me as well. Uh, 
when people would say, oh, you guys are such, um, you, know, you know, workaholics, you're always working. And somehow I, I always consider that, you know, work has um, always been a passion. I was, I guess, me and Sabine as well, we both uh, chose to do what we really loved. So it didn't really seem like, like a job, like, like work. So, yeah, so we did it until you were tired out. It's not that you didn't have fun as well. But that, yeah, work was really important for a number of years. And then, you know, with life, you shift your energies and your focus. What are the things that Sabine did that got her categorized as an activist, that made the world see her as a hero and an activist? So, you know, she really uh, supported um, all the minority groups in, in, uh, in Karachi. And uh, even outside Karachi, she would travel. Anybody who uh, couldn't, who didn't have a voice, she gave a voice, gave a voice to. Um, she, when she started T2F, uh, which is the second floor, uh, under the umbrella of an organization she founded called Peace Nish, um, it, it was a space to give aspiring young people a platform, singers, dancers, stand-up comedians, artists, you know. Um, her whole thing was that uh, people don't give, people who are, are starting out, young people, they don't give them a platform until they have the experience if no one gives them the space, whether it's an art gallery or it's theater or it's anything. So, uh, so she just just called everyone in and said, come on, you know, you have the space, just do it. And she would make everyone feel like, you know, they were special and that they could do things. Then apart from that, there were a lot of um, pretty political issues that she took on. Um, and uh, again, T2F was a place where she would, you know, uh, have these discussions because she felt that freedom of speech to her was really, really important. And she felt that, you know, that people's voices should not be stifled and that we should have discussions about, about everything. Dialogue was really important. So, and um, right from, I think, right from the start almost, she had agencies, you know, like, like you have the CIA and, you know, FBI. we had agencies coming in plain clothes and sort of sitting in on these discussions. They always had an eye on what she was doing because she gave so many people a voice and uh, supported so many minority groups, even traveling into Sindh helping people, Hindu communities, the Shia communities, whoever, if they were having sit-in somewhere, no matter what time of day or night she would go, show her support that I'm there, whatever you're doing, please carry on. So I think that gave people a lot of, I think she gave people a lot of courage and helped them to believe in themselves. And I think that's what really um, triggered it. And then giving G2F as a space for any kind of dialogue. And, and the last one just before, Michelle, you, you probably know this, you, you know, there are uh, the missing people in Balochistan is a big issue here in Pakistan. And she continuously gave space for this topic as well, which is really kind of dangerous almost, you know. And then this last one in 2015, she's been doing it since 2007, eight. Uh, talking about uh, Balochistan and, and, and the missing people. I'm not going into the politics of that. It'll take too long. And there were 
and she even got threats on and off that you know stop this don't do this but she said i'm, I'm going to do it and there were some very big institutions who were going to hold them and uh, sabine was also threatened but she said you know somebody has to give them a space to talk and uh, nobody else is willing to do it so i'm going to do it i i can't really say whether that was the cause of her killing that night i don't know that's a mystery that we are all still kind of grappling with but it just happened on that day straight after that event on balochistan that um, you know we just left uh, the space together and uh, she had to go to she was meeting up with some friends and they were having dinner together and she uh, we live pretty close to where the t2f uh, venue is and she said uh, she's called me amma amma i'm going to drop you home and then i'll go and we were at this traffic light and you know these guys just drove up and uh, fired i mean at literally they were her window so obviously they had been uh, they've been following uh, us they were probably parked somewhere outside t2f and uh, so when we were parked outside there uh, um, just at the traffic signal a lot of traffic and they just came and you know fired five shots and she just died instantly so yeah i don't know if that answers your question michelle if you want me to you know if there are any further questions i'd be happy to answer the- Zora, do you have any questions? So with with the current surge in activism and protest movements in the US, I'm curious about your thoughts on on the people behind those movements and the messages they're spreading and if you could, you know, speak to their parents um or speak to people close to them, what would you say to them? To the parents of the young people who are behind these protests or to the young people themselves, yeah. To the young people themselves. I think, you know, my thing is always just do what your heart follow your heart if you believe in something go for it i am not certain but i don't think that in the us it is uh, that dangerous to do these things i've been asked this question by pakistanis as well and uh, in our context i find this question really challenging and difficult to answer because i took a lot of risks with sabine in terms of saying go for it do whatever doesn't matter um i i even said to sabina i think you're going to get a bullet in your back one day um but it's okay i'll deal with it if that happens you do what what you believe you have to do because whatever time we have on this planet um we have to make it worthwhile and if you're going to live in in fear or i will live in fear which a lot of pakistani mothers fathers parents do then i mean like what kind of life is that you know right. so to me that kind of life just doesn't make sense if you are going to be stifled and say okay, don't do this don't do that if you say this this will happen you know yeah yes right. it's so i that that was personal so for me to say that in pakistan it's really difficult to to tell parents i think it's it's not in my place to advise them to oh let your girls go out and okay get shot or get raped or get kidnapped or let anything happen to them right. i i just could not find the find the courage to say that and uh, that would have to be their choice but uh, i think also a lot of people you know i've said 
to people and I've probably said it to Michelle as well that knowing what I know now you know like the way Sabine's life and our lives unfolded if I had this knowledge if having this knowledge now if I had to do it again I would still do it I wouldn't back off and say no 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 you're going to get killed so don't do it I don't know if that answers your question Dora, that but, does uh, I I guess I have yeah. another question based on that you said that you know you're sort of your philosophy is don't live in fear, you know, do, do what you're passionate about. And I guess I'm curious when that, when that philosophy came to you or when you started believing in that in your life, was there a moment that sparked that for you? Or have you always been a person who's just you know, courageous and, and, and anti-fear? I don't think I've, I've had a very different kind of, of courage. I've you know, I'm quite an introvert. And when I was growing up as a child, I was, I was much more introverted than I am now. I lacked confidence. I couldn't speak up. I was quite a loner. But I had a lot of strength inside. I mean, I, I stood up for a lot of things. And I think having, having Sabine, um, I, was, I was quite young. It gave me a sort of a different kind of agency you know, like here is this person and I wanted to kind of raise her to be, to have courage and not to be anxiety ridden and fearful like I was growing up because it wasn't a nice place to be in. So I said, I'm not going to let that happen to, to my child. I would like her to, you know, just go out and do her thing. So, but as, um, and it was after that, that I really uh, began to gain courage myself and then began to break certain boundaries like being, like working. I mean, again, this workaholic bit, you know, I worked many, many years ago in the 90s uh, with some street schools in an area uh, in Karachi, which is very, everybody considers it a very dangerous uh, area. And none of my friends, family, I mean, most of them haven't been there to date. But I decided I wanted to work with those street schools. And uh, so I do a full day. You're an early childhood educator, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And uh, so there were these young people um, who had set up these street schools um, in Liari because they, again, they were activists as well. They are activists and they felt that uh, the public school system in Liari wasn't giving their children what they needed. And uh, there's a lot of drugs in Liari, lots of gun violence, really, really scary stuff goes on there. And so after work, uh, after a full day's work at five, because these were schools that were set up in the evening on the street. So the only time I could go there was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. So, I mean, I did it. I used to go there. I used to, you know, do some teacher training and then support them in their classrooms. And then when I'd be coming back home, I knew that I would face some flack, you know, <laughs> My husband, father, what are you doing out? out at 8 a.m. and now it's you know 9:30 p.m. is this any time to come home all of that but because I believed so much in what I was doing I said I don't care let me do it first I'll, I'll face that music later you know so I really began to get that sense of agency um, from the work I did yeah yeah because I believed in it it was just had to be something that one believed in and was passionate enough about to say okay I'm going to risk 
whatever, I'm, I'm going to do this. Right. So, no, I, I'm still curious, like how, how you found that passion for education and for like passionate enough that you would, you would risk these things and you know, risk the flag. Okay, so my passion for, you know, most of my passions <laughs> come from the kind of a reaction to my own childhood and my own schooling, I would say. I'm not even calling it an education. So, I mean, my mind was never in the classroom. I just did not kind of fit into the way we were taught. It just didn't, you know, do anything for me. And so, you know, as, as uh, I had a teacher, no, none of that. It, it, it didn't enter my mind. But when it did, after Sabine started school, I wanted to change the kind of learning experiences that children had in their classrooms and used my own experiences, the things I didn't have, and I thought, okay, this is what should happen. So that is what gave me the passion, really, to change things for children in the classroom. And then that just kind of, you know, again, internet connection is unstable. I don't know why. So, yeah. Susan, I don't know. Does that answer your question? I have a little bit of a follow-up question, too, because... I think this topic of fear is so pervasive. And, you know, what I heard you say earlier is that there there are actually, you know, in Pakistan, there are a lot more tangible things to be afraid of. And yet here in America, we have a society that is just riddled with anxiety, especially our young people. And, And I really appreciated what you said that you had to be courageous and overcome a lot of your own fears in order to not engender fear in your daughter. Um, But I'm curious about what were the tangible things that you did to, to try not to convey a sense of fear because she certainly didn't get that sense of fear by how she lived her life. Um, And so what, what, if anything, were kind of tangible choices that you made um, to to avoid making her feel afraid. Okay. Right. So one was through our relationship, like, you know, never shouting and yelling and making her feel, you know, two inches tall. It was always, always spoke to her with respect. That doesn't mean that there were no boundaries. There were boundaries and she knew those. And if she overstepped them and we talked about them, as she grew, I mean, age-appropriate boundaries. She knew that she had to deal with the consequences of her actions uh, throughout from the time she was young. I never said to her that, oh, don't go there, you'll fall, or don't do this, you'll get hurt. Go and do it. If you fall, fine, it's okay. Part of growing up. Then when she was really young, about five maybe, okay, you can, Sabine, you're going to cross this road. These are things that people from our social economic class, they just don't do. You know, children are really very, very uh, sheltered, you know. I said, do you look here, look there, cross the road. When she started cycling um, and, you know, after just cycling up and down our lane, she wanted to go further. I said, okay, go. And my heart was really in my mouth because I said, I don't know what's going to happen. And my mother-in-law, oh my God, she was so angry with me. She said, how have you let this child, you know, just drive off? And I said, okay, it doesn't matter. So I used to get a lot of stress from my, from the elders in the family because everybody has a say in the way that you raise your 
child, everybody has a say in, in everything. Our, our society and our social setup is very different. In some ways it's awful and in some ways it's amazing because you have a lot of, you have a great support system. But with that also goes all the other, other sort of not so uh, amusing kind of ways that we live, but, but it's good. I used to let her play out on the street. She loved cricket and, you know, I mean, she, she wouldn't, she was, she's an only child and, and didn't have any cousins her age or, you know, family around. So she would play with whoever was on the street. I mean, other people's drivers, their guards, their, you know, some laborers who were building something. And, and I never stopped her. I said, you know, you have to be respectful with everybody and just go ahead and play with them. I mean, that's fine. I think all of these little things that I did, maybe it wasn't very conscious that I'm building this in her. I wasn't thinking, okay, these are the strategies I'll use. It's only upon reflection that, that I realized that all of these things I did were pretty like crazy and way out. And, and my some of my friends did say to me, what are you doing? You're raising some sort of a... You know, um, there's a word we call, uh, you know, it's called gunda, like a ruffian, you know. So my friends would say that, you're raising a ruffian. What is she doing playing outside with all these unknown guys? I said, it's okay. I mean, that's, let, let her be. I mean, she's enjoying it. I mean, how is it bothering anybody? Who's going, I'm not playing cricket with her. I don't know how to. So, <laughs> and, and they're all decent human beings and it's fine. So, you know, Michelle, these were some of the tangible things like growing up. And then uh, as she grew older, I mean, she went to a school which is considered pretty elite. But, you know, me, I didn't know this when she went there. So that's another long story. I don't know if you want to hear it. Everybody had like the, you know, the very affluent uh, people. And, you know, I really had to work hard to even pay her tuition fee. Once I realized, oh, my God, where have you put her? And um, that's how naive I was at that time. Gosh, think about it. And so I, I was very, uh, like, I used to talk to her really straight about, about everything. That, look, all your friends will go abroad, you know, for their summer holidays. We can't afford it. You're going to just be here in Karachi. So, you know, there was throughout, there was this very reasonable conversation going on. That this is where who we are. This is what we can afford. This is what we can't. This is how it's going to be. You want to go for sports practice. You want to go anywhere. You have to find your way. So, you know, carpool with somebody, get someone to take you, find your own way. So she had to become very resourceful. And all of those things I didn't have when I was growing up. I was very sheltered. So again, it was okay. And the first time I got on a bus in Karachi to go to the university, I was like dying. I thought I'm going to, you know, have a nervous breakdown. Because we just didn't. You always had a car and driver in your porch and, you know, they took you wherever you wanted. And we used public transport. And suddenly I find myself in Karachi, hanging onto this bus. There was no place to sit. And I thought, where am I? Like, what's happening to me? And, uh, you know, if I ever have a child, I don't want her to face this. She should be used to it from the word go. Yes, it does. Um, and, I, you know, I, I know that, since Sabine died and, uh, you know, probably before, uh, based on what you're saying, that you have been finding the courage to find your own voice. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, obviously, there are so many ways in which Sabine's death has affected you. I mean, physically, just in that you were shot at the same time as she was, but also just in finding your voice. And so, uh, what I would love to hear about through the book that you put out this year for the five-year anniversary of Sabine's death, 
conversations interrupted and lots of other projects. You have been speaking out a lot more and I want to know what that's been like for you. You know, when, when did you realize that you had something very important to say in the wake of Sabine's, but also uh, in the, in the wake of Sabine's death, but also just independent of that, just uh, on your own? Independent of that, I um, I had been kind of sharing my, my I did have a voice in, in my workplace, uh, Teachers Resource Center, which is also a, a non-profit organization. I worked there for about like 29 years or something. Um, so I had I had really found my voice there, work-related voice. And I was I had gained a lot of confidence uh, in that. So I had found that voice, but with um, in the wake of Sabine's uh, death, conversations interrupted was, you know, it started as a very personal process, you know, and because I'm an introvert, I don't, you know, I, I, I think before Sabine, I never really shared uh, what I was thinking, what I was feeling to that extent, but I always wrote. So whenever I, I had an issue or something, I was, you know, getting into something new, I would always write and that always helped me to, to process my feelings and it helped me to get through that. It helped me to introspect, to reflect, to analyze what was happening and come to terms with whatever it was. So for me, um, after Sabine died, I think it was just the very, the most natural thing to do was to write. And, uh, and because we were such good friends and we used to talk so much every day, I just found that it was best to just talk to her through this journal. And I kept writing and writing and writing. Uh, and uh, some people got like, really, we didn't realize you were writing for five years. So somewhere down the road, I began to share bits of my writing with a couple of friends and they were all like, you know, this is really amazing and that you know, nothing like this has been written, especially in our context, in the Pakistani context. And I think during this um, COVID-19, this period now, since February, I think it just kind of happened naturally. The five-year mark was coming and one day I just thought, okay, five years let me put this out. If I have to do it, I should do it now. How am I? Otherwise, I'll be writing for 10 years and then, you know, somebody will find it after I'm dead and then what? Let's let it go now. So I think that kind of, I think COVID-19 actually spurred me to, and then, you know, some friends said that, oh, she, she's a designer and she does layout and I was just going to put it out as a blog. And she says, no, 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 I'm going to turn it into a book and no, 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 you give it to me and, you know, I'll do it. And this other friend said that I'll uh, do some, I'll do the editing for you. So we wanted to just kind of edit certain things because I was just writing a very personal uh, journal. So there were certain names in there, you know, I'd also mentioned police officers and like other little things which she felt. And she's a journalist as well, this friend and a writer. So she said, you know, I don't think it's safe to, to put these things out. So let's, so I said, okay, you do it. So, so she did that. So it just kind of happened. And then the other bits that you're asking about the lighter side of uh, Sabine bits. Um, again, like I said to you at the outset that, you know, I sort of never perceived Sabine as this activist. 
And so when all these articles and everything that I read on her from all over the world talked about this hero, this this person, and I said, where's my Sabine lost in all of this? Like, you know, maybe she's this to them. Okay, I'll, I'll, I've now learned to respect the fact that, okay, some people see her that way and I should let it be. I shouldn't trust my uh, opinion on them. But initially I was like, who is this person? Like, who is this Sabine Mahmood they're talking about? So I started writing this, some little anecdotes that I remembered, which were, you know, her quirky side or her fun side. And I decided to put those out so that people could see that, look, she was also like you and me. She wasn't just this, this serious hero activist who was out there, you know, with this torch, this torch bearer who was helping people. She was also human and she knew how to have fun and she played cricket and she did silly things. And, um, and then I thought it would be so nice to hear from her friends. So now a lot of her friends have started writing in and telling us about uh, their stories. That's lovely for me because some stories even I don't know from her college friends or school friends. So it's giving me another insight into into her. So in that way, she kind of lives on for me. One of the things that we really look at at The One Is Now is how to live fully in the present, which it sounds like you and Sabine were able to do and that you're, you are able to continue to do that. And I was just wondering how, how you do that, how you find peace and how you continue to live in the present. Uh, some of the things that uh, I did was to take one day at a time and just stay positive and, and these are kind of traits or attributes that I've developed. It's, it's kind of a lifelong process of, of developing this within oneself, of looking at the glass half full, being positive, engaging yourself in constructive, nurturing work. And that always makes me feel grounded and it makes me feel okay with the world. Sabine's going was something that I had been thinking about her death since the time she was a child. So, and somewhere this belief that, you know, when the time comes, it comes and you're going to go. So, and I think I was counting my blessings in that, you know, a lot of activists, journalists have been kidnapped. I was just thinking that, you know, Sabine could have been kidnapped. She could have been tortured. She could have been raped. I mean, a lot of horrible things could have happened. Maybe I wouldn't have seen her that day because, you know, we were both busy with our own work. That she died in front of my eyes and I saw that she did not suffer when in that moment. I mean, all this gave me a lot of peace. It might sound very strange, but it gave me peace that I was with her when she breathed her last. And I saw that she went like instantly in a nanosecond. I mean, five bullets coming straight at you and at such, you know, short range. So all of this brought me peace that beginning with the premise that we all have to go and we don't know when we'll go. So she lived a full life. She was unwell. She was not ill. She didn't suffer. She died living on her own terms till her last breath. So to me, that was like, wow, what a great life. What a great way to go. Thank you so much. I know it's getting late there. Um, and I no, don't That's wanna... okay. Lovely meeting all of you and have a nice day, the rest of your day. 
The When Is Now is co-hosted by Michelle Fiordaliso and Zora Alunga-Reed. It's produced in Los Angeles, California by Jack Zager. The next free 21-day coaching program begins on Monday, October 5th. Use it to find your purpose in our changing world by signing up on thewhenisnow.com. You'll also find complete show notes there. Thank you for listening. And remember, the when is now. <laughs>